Have you been zombified by morbid curiosity? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, Media Outreach Program Manager for ASU and Brain Enthusiast. You love brains. We love brains. Yes. So, yeah, it's kind of our thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and today it's uh, morbid curiosity. Morbid curiosity, yeah. So, uh, so we're going to hear from Barb Natterson Horowitz. She is a professor both at UCLA and a visiting professor at Harvard. She's also a doctor. She has worked on sort of topics that range from very mainstream kind of evolution in medicine and how we can use evolution to understand ourselves to topics like um, what she's writing her current book on, uh, which is adolescence and looking at adolescence from an evolutionary perspective. So how can we actually understand what human adolescence is like better by taking a really cross-species approach. So now, is that what you guys talk about today? We talk about that, and we get to the topic of morbid curiosity, because that seems to kind of be an adolescent thing. So so tell me what you mean by morbid curiosity. Yes, yeah, so the kind of curiosity that will get can get you in trouble, like can, you know, make you die, for example. Like, say you are in a situation with a dangerous predator, or maybe there's a zombie on the horizon, and you just want to go towards it. Okay, just to see what it's up to? Yeah, so why would you ever do that from an evolutionary perspective? Do you want me to answer? I have a guess. Yeah, give it a try. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would give you useful information, right? Yep. Um, yeah, that's so. kind of the direction that we go. So let's hear from Barb Natterson about morbid curiosity. All right, sounds good. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. So I'm Barb Natterson Horowitz, and I am um, I am an evolutionary biologist and a physician, a cardiologist. And in my work, I turn to the natural world for insights into human health. Um, specifically, I like to look comparatively across the world of animals for um, commonalities and differences that can illuminate um, and sort of inspire um, how physicians and people in the health field approach medical problems and psychiatric problems, but also to sort of look broadly for insights from um, the world of animals for development um, and for every aspect of human life. So sort of what can we learn from non-human animals that can inform how we understand ourselves and also how we take care of ourselves and manage diseases and 
promote health. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, that's sort of how this is all, this all started. I mean, I should say that, um, so we're having our meeting here today in my office yeah, um, in Cambridge. awesome <laughs> office. This is beautiful. Well, you know what these are? These are, um, so everybody knows that John James Audubon did birds. Yeah. But he also had the mammalian series, the, the oh, mammals of so North America. So these are, almost all of those are birds, but these are almost beautiful. all, and this is my favorite one behind you. And Whoa. these are all part of the um, the public domain now. So you can oh. get these from the national site. I mean, the, and so anyway, so I just, awesome. yes, these are all John D. Audubon prints. Uh, but yeah, so we're in Cambridge right now because um, I'm a visiting professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology uh, and now, but I am also a professor of medicine and cardiology at UCLA. And you do that because you cloned yourself, so you can be in both places at once. Yes, I yeah. have made a secret discovery, exactly, <laughs> which is not a secret anymore. But yeah, so the point is that um, initially when, I mean, I spent 20 plus years as a physician, as a cardiologist, you know, as an attending physician in the cardiac care unit at UCLA, teaching medical students and interns and residents and cardiology fellows, um, treating high blood pressure and heart attacks and all of that. Um, and then I had this experience that really gave me um, a close-up view of the world of veterinary medicine, which really transformed my what, perspective. What was that experience? Um, well, I was basically, at the time, I was um, I was the director of cardiac imaging for our arrhythmia group at UCLA. You know, arrhythmias are electrical disturbances of the heart, like atrial fibrillation. And I was doing tons of, of cardiac imaging um, around that issue. And I got a call from one of the veterinarians at the LA Zoo that one of their chimpanzees um, had had what they thought was a neurological event, and they wanted me to come to the zoo and to do a cardiac ultrasound on the animal to see whether there had been, you know, there was a blood clot that could have caused a stroke, etc. Mm. So I started going to the zoo, basically. When was the last time you'd been to the zoo before they called you? <laughs> oh, my God. That's actually a really, really good question. Um, wow. Well, well, here's kind of a fun fact. Mm -hmm. The uh, patient that they called me about was a female chimp whose name was Pandora. And um, what's really beautiful about Pandora, and Pandora um, ended up doing really well and lived um, a number of years. She was very geriatric when she eventually passed recently. But um, I ended up, um, I really got connected to her because I took care of her. And um, it was my first experience going to the zoo. Um, as a physician, so she had a lot of meaning in my life. And as I was reading about her, I learned that she had been brought to, she had been, she came to the LA Zoo, I, I believe it was like 1965 or 66. In fact, there's a picture wow. of her as an infant in the arms of the veterinarians. Oh my then. goodness. And my parents, I grew up in LA, you know, I went to like public schools in LA. It was like a LA girl. And my folks loved the zoo and they loved Griffith Park. So we used to go to the zoo a lot and we would hike in Griffith Park and they would go to the zoo. So I have this feeling like I've known Pandora because I, you know, I can't prove it. I don't really remember, but yeah. Um, That's awesome. So yeah, but it was, a, it was a, it was a cool experience. And that then led to, um, they asked me back to image their gorillas and their other primate patients. And then eventually I started doing more, um, imaging under the supervision of, the, of these, you know, amazing veterinarians who are board certified. But for me as a physician, um, I had this aha moment that, um, you know, even though I 
you know, I was a full professor of medicine. I felt I knew a tremendous amount about a wide range of cardiovascular diseases. I had not thought at all about um, which of those diseases could also naturally or spontaneously occur in non-human animals. It just wasn't part of my thinking. And so what happened through this um, experience of being in the world of veterinary medicine is I began seeing that whether it was um, a neurologic a stroke or whether it was heart failure, or whether it was breast cancer or whether it was um, leukemia or lymphoma or a brain tumor or even eating problems or anxiety uh, kinds of problems that this vulnerability um, to get sick um, is species-wide and yeah. that human exceptionalism had um, been a kind of blindfold um, that I had and that by taking it off, I was just able to see this whole new world. And so my career shifted from taking care of human patients all the time to begin looking for connections between animal and human health, which led me to the question of common ancestry and ultimately evolutionary biology. And so it was like this revelation that like all of life and especially mammals have a lot of similarities to us in terms of susceptibility to disease and what makes them vulnerable to disease. A absolutely. But what happened um, as part of my journey, um, it was a, a journey of humility and um, <laughs> <laughs> awakening, um, was... I quickly learned, so I started, um, so I was still working full-time as a cardiologist uh, at UCLA, doing a lot of teaching and a lot of clinical work, but I was going to the zoo as much as I could when I was asked. I was going to veterinary conferences. I was visiting with vets. I was reading the veterinary literature. And um, quickly, I started hearing about, uh, first on rounds at the zoo, actually, about um, some animals who had self-injury and mm. were being treated with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs, right? Drugs like Prozac and Zoloft. And I mean, to me, self-injury, um, I associated it with like with cutting behavior yeah. that you might see in an adolescent or um, this kind of thing. So it was really interesting to even hear the, in that context or the use of, of those kinds of psychotropic drugs. And then... Um, learning about anxiety, particularly separation anxiety mm -hmm. in domestic dogs and learning about sexual dysfunction in stallions and then learning about eating disorders in a whole range of animals. Um, and as this sort of the, the evidence mounted in front of me, I realized that, um, that not only was my, again, my, my human exceptionalism had been a blindfold, so... A, B, that um, the vulnerability to these problems is pretty broad. And finally, that in order to, that this insight that these were taxa-wide um, immediately forced me to consider alternative explanations for um, causal explanations. In other words, it led to new hypotheses that were not even possible in my mind right. without this comparative information. Because if it's just a human thing, then we're just going to look for exclusively human um, explanations. Yeah. So it yeah. really is, it, I mean, you can vomit because this is such a trite, but it was, <laughs> it was paradigm. It yeah. was, it was, I mean, it, it shifted. Yeah. It blew my mind. Yeah. 
blew your mind, ate your brain, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, well, I want to talk about morbid curiosity with you. And as I was thinking, and you're talking about your interest in the big killers and all the, and like, wow, Barb actually is literally, she has morbid curiosity. You're curious about all these morbid things. I love that. I love it. Yeah. So you're like the personification (laughs) of this very episode. (laughs) Yeah. So I I love this kind of zombification um, idea. So, I mean, it works in so many ways. It stretches in so many directions. Um, Yeah. So the, the whole morbid curiosity thing of like, you know, why is it that we are even interested in things that have to do with you know, potentially dying or getting right. injured or threats, monsters. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so, so my new project, what I've, um, what I've, I've sort of all, of, all the medical stuff was to sort of set up that. Although I'm still interested in that, I sort of moved to using the same methodology that I developed for studying this yeah. perspective on human disease and animal disease, and to look at development. And particularly, um, I set my sights on understanding one of the most challenging, misunderstood, confusing, and terrifying phases of life, uh, which is the period between sort of childhood and adulthood, which sometimes is called adolescence. Um, And so this has been what I've been doing for the last five years. And, um, And I've been, I've just finished Pub, well, the new book, which is based on this, um, is going to be published Exciting. in September. Yay. Well, here, I'll set up the name. So what do you call the period of life between childhood and adulthood across all species? Wildhood. Wildhood. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so anyway, so one of the, the, so what I needed to do, I needed to find a way to use, to turn to the natural world, to turn to the world of animals, to see whether there were ways to better understand these really some really scary and tough aspects of adolescent life. Right, because adolescents are like, they take a lot of risks. They often do things that seem like they're really not in their best interests. And right. So how do you right. explain all they that? They right? seem zombified by this developmental mm-hmm. phase, right? So, um, so the first thing that I needed to do... Um, you know, it was interesting because I, in the beginning, um, and Catherine Bowers, who we are, we've been research and writing partners and all this, we needed to figure out um, what animal adolescence actually was and what that meant. Yeah. So what, I mean, is there such a thing as animal adolescence? Like, can we say that for sure? Well, the um, I feel I can say for sure that okay, there is yeah, at this point. Me. And, um, <laughs> you know, human adolescence is typically defined, uh-huh. has been defined by the onset um, of puberty as the beginning. And okay. then it sort of, it ends at different organizations have it ending at different times. So um, in, in some circles, it yeah. ends at um, 21, in other... Other groups feel that it ends at 23. There are So is it just like an arbitrary number or is it based on something developmental that is supposed right. to be happening in the brain or the body? Yeah, the, the, well, the question, I mean, it, baked into the question is the problem because <laughs> right. the, the definitions vary depending on the criteria. So um, this the increasing awareness about uh, the unique um, neurological development of the adolescent brain has led to um, it, it sort of awareness that the that the brain continues to develop um, through certainly the late teens, early 20s, 
late 20s and some some instances even 30s. So, so there's been this sort of expansion of it if you're using the criteria of brain development, right? But then there is also, um, there, there are other criteria. There are, um, there are legal, there's a legal definition, right? right. There is, um, so the American Academy of Pediatrics has a different, um, it, it's not, the, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, the WHO, I mean, you have groups that are really, you know, evidence-based and just, yeah. but they, they differ. So it's, right. So, so then how do you apply that to animals to say, like, we can right. tell that there is an adolescent period in non-human animals? Right. So so the, the way that we did that was to um, first look at puberty across a wide range of animals. And, um, you know, if you're going to, if you're a sexual animal um, and you're born as a juvenile, uh, you're going to have a period where there's a transition and you're going to become you're gonna you're gonna go through puberty. I mean, sharks go through puberty, right? And um, <laughs> whales go through puberty. And um, we, you know, it's 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 even ancient animals, right? Every neat, well, I mean, every you know, Australopithecus, right? Like Lucy and and mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. So there's like a pu- there's like puberty, there's, and then and then there's some what, time until you're fully mature, right? And what that and what we realized is that adolescence, um, a lot of the way adolescence was is even defined, um, sort of was very much entrained to the physical, to the biology, to the reproductive piece. And um, what was not as definitional was really what what the purpose of adolescence was or what the mm-hmm. what the core competencies were. And so what we began looking at is that there across across really all animal species, um, that transition from being a juvenile um, and we sort of start not with puberty, but sort of with the, the an, an animal who's already physically pretty grown and okay. is reproductively capable, although not reproducing. And from there, because actually many animals are reproductively capable, but don't actually reproduce for quite a long time. Uh-huh. But from there, we just looked at the necessary stages that there are across the animal kingdom, there are four core competencies, four challenges that you have to face and deal with. For wild animals, if they don't go through those stages of wildhood, they don't survive. So what are those stages? So first, you, an animal, a juvenile, needs to learn to be safe. Okay. They so stay away from the zombies. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're going to actually, in some cases, this is what's so cool, you have to sometimes go toward the zombies in order mm-hmm. to really be protected from the zombies, which is... Yeah. After the safety period. Uh, that's actually during the safety period. Oh, really? Right, right. Well, well okay. I'll go there. Okay, so okay. so right. they have to learn to be safe. Um, social animals, and social animals are mammals, right? Yeah. Birds. And actually... Even reptiles, yes, um, and amphibians and fish. So social animals have social brain networks, and they need to learn how to engage with other members of whatever the group is. So there's a social, um, a social learning function. Hmm. The third uh, is is sexuality. Is understanding the language of courtship and sexual communication and. Hmm. Um, and this is really very important because, you know, in our species, sex yeah. ed is all about... Well, and I mean, you're saying that, but I have a feeling that there's some people who never go through that final stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's... Well, 
and, I mean, they might have sex, but they might not learn the language of sexual well, communication, well, yeah. right? <laughs> which, 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 by the way, yes, is, is a problem on lots of the things. But including, just to be a little bit serious for a second, including all of these modern contemporary challenges around, around consent and coercion mm. and understanding that if you look actually at animal sex ed, sex ed in the wild, young animals from the earliest stages are learning um, this, these subtle, complex how to understand and transmit and respond. And courtship is more than something, you know, you watch in a David Attenborough documentary about, you know, the plumage to display. Hmm. Courtship is a two-way conversation between animals. It's essentially a conversation, should we or shouldn't we? Are we or aren't we? Wow. And um, that's a whole other conversation. Be, but, but, the, but the point... I mean, that's super relevant, though, to the zombification issue, right? The control and autonomy and... Yes. Like, if you have a bi-directional conversation, then you can figure out, mm-hmm. is this something that we're both entering into that is in both of our interests or right. at least at the moment we think Oh, my is, gosh. Right? You know, yeah, totally. I mean, like, one of the most interesting ways of thinking about, I think... I mean, since the roots of all human behavior can be found in our animal ancestors, and I think there's more to be found there than we have. I know that, again, because of human exceptionalism and a tendency to assume that we're more different than we are the same. But if you even look at Drosophila, if you look at fruit fly courtship, right? So um, the male, you know, the male approaches and puts an uh, um, a limb on the female, who then, and then based on how she responds to that. Um, it determines what he's going to do next, whether mm. there will be an initiation of the next step. And so there is this, so even between flies, yeah. you have this back and forth, and she has part of her brain, well, her, some neurons, <laughs> that um, is processing whether she wants to accept the overture. So there's yeah. this whole thing. It's not just a couple of flies. It's two individuals who are going to, who are, talking about whether it's going to happen or not. Yeah. And what's really interesting in terms of the zombie, the zombification, because, you know, this, there's this, there has been, I've heard this idea that, you know, you hear that, well, teenagers are sex crazed and they're in a hormonal storm and all this. This is, you know, it's, it's sort of trite thing that it's people trite say and about. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's, not, it's under-examined. But sort of with that as a very low bar for understanding sexuality mm-hmm. in emerging adults, um, we then can look at animal courtship and see some really interesting examples of, of how things happen. There is, for example, co- coercive sexuality among animals. There's no question that um, there's sexual coercion. But there's also, you do begin to see the building blocks of human consent. And yes, they are, I mean, that sounds maybe provocative or controversial, but they are the building blocks of consent. Yeah, that's really cool. There's a study, this Brazilian biologist did this amazing study where she looked at um, these turtles and she looked at the male. Um, so when the males advanced on the females to, you know, to have sex or to express their interest, um, in this study, the females um, accepted those overtures, the primary overture, that first overture, only 14% of the time. Mm. The... Um, so then 86% of the males went away. Of the 86 that were rejected, 96% understood, again, I'm going to be, mm. I'm going to personify, forgive me, but yeah. no means no. Only 4% persisted. Huh. So, you 
you know, there's a million factors what's going on in the, the yeah. ecology and all these things. But it's just interesting to look at a Brazilian turtle. Yeah. And to see that there, this conversation of understanding, of sending signals, receiving signals. Yeah. Um, responding. Responding. Yeah. Probably learning um, what mm-hmm. they mean. I mean, I yeah. don't know who the 4% were that persisted. Yeah. Were they? But anyway, so, so yeah. once you begin thinking, oh, my gosh, <laughs> in turtles, really? In fruit flies? These conversations yeah. are happening? Now, all of a sudden... The idea that, um, and by the way, even Drosophila have a stop. There's, you know, if if there's a negative signal, there's a there's a stop mm-hmm. and go, right? Mm. This is, it's not automatic. As the the um, Michael Crickmore who and his, uh, um, uh, gosh, his doctor, I forget her full name. They have a lab together, Dredula. Okay. Um, they, um, they, they, he as he says. They're not little robots. Yeah. It's not like once they start, they're just going to go to yeah. population. Like, they're signals and they... They're not sex zombies. They're not sex zombies. Yeah. Even just soft lard. So yeah. it's just sort of like, let's like, let's try to be, think of ourselves more like Drosophila <laughs> in terms of, you know, like just, and begin yeah. thinking about like learning yeah, that yeah. just because there's sexual desire, even Drosophila, it's like a balancing of desire and restraint. Yep. Desire and restraint. Not mm-hmm. zombified... Um, pursuit, right? Regardless of what's coming back. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, sex. Yeah. And the final thing that adolescents need to master across the animal world, they need to learn to be self reliant and mm-hmm. you know find food for themselves and all of that. Right. But the safety part was yeah, that what we yeah. want to talk about. Yeah. So, tell me about what you mean by like they have to learn to be safe, but that can involve actually not being safe. Right. That paradox. Right. So, um, so one of the first things when, this was several years ago, when I started thinking about like adolescence and risk and all this. Yeah. So you, so are you going to explain like basically why it's mostly adolescents who like zombie movies essentially? Yeah. That's yeah. where we're going to, okay. we're going to get to <laughs> that. And, and everyone else who loves zombie movies, they're really just, they haven't even the, left that exactly. first stage of <laughs> development. <laughs> yeah. No, actually. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I should probably get this statistic on, like, who buys tickets for scary movies. But it does really seem like... Uh-huh. It does seem like... I would tip in that direction. So, okay. So, um, so what did I know about... Okay, so first of all, the grim statistics. Okay, and it is it is grim. Like, the between being a child and being um, a, a, a young... Like, a person in your 20s, and um, there's a... A doubling, like it's reported, is a two hundred percent increase in mortality. It's a very, very dangerous period for human beings. Which period? Between and adolescence, essentially, from moving from childhood okay. mortality risk to early adult. Okay. It is. Um, it's. It's a high. It's. It's the more the, the risk of dying increases significantly. Mm-hmm. Now that's been explained. I mean, a lot of really smart people have been looking at that. And um, a lot of that, first of all, most of that is accidents. And most of those accidents are car accidents, okay. um, followed by suicide and homicide. And and then some other factors. But um, just starting with accidents first. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of the really good science that's looked at why it's adolescents are so accident prone has looked at unique aspects of adolescent neurobiology and we've learned that actually yeah that the the restraint centers or the executive um the executive processing centers the prefrontal cortex that sort of regulates and contains Mm -hmm. 
that those things come online later than other brain functions. And so that may lead to impulsivity and a lack of judgment. And in fact, some of the characteristics of adolescents broadly are that they tend to be, some of them at least, tend to be more impulsive mm-hmm. and more more um, sensation-seeking. They may experience the pleasure rewards of, of risk-taking more. Um, they also have brains that um, their threshold for risk um, decreases. Well, they're willing to take more risks when they're with peers. I mean, they're mm-hmm. and these are all kind of brain-based They've been looking we love brains on brains, this podcast. Right. Neurobiology. So, yeah. <laughs> but, here's, but here's the thing. I would say neurobiology is fantastic, and it's transformed lots of things, right? Yeah. Before neurobiology, we were, we were talking Freudian, mm-hmm. you know, we were explaining things based on whatever, potty training and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And psychology and psychiatry and neurobiology, really, really valuable. But um, I would say that ecology is actually um, as important as neurobiology or psychology, that those are sort of inside-out ways of understanding uh-huh. things, but ecology really is outside So in. how does ecology help us understand what's what's going on in, in adolescence, and in particular, like, connecting it to the work that you've done looking across species yeah. at adolescence? So how, how does ecology... Right. Give us these answers. So the first thing that I needed to know to sort of see, hey, can we move past this inside-out approach to this outside-in approach is, um, first of all, do non-human animal adolescents also suffer high rates of accidents and risks? And it turns out they do. I did a very large systematic review of um, animals who are, we would call them, I call them animal adolescents. They're leaving home. They're called dispersing animals. They're old enough to leave the natal you know, den or burrow, or fledgling birds. So these are birds that are old enough to be off, right? And in those first days and weeks out of the nest, they it's, a, it's the most dangerous period of their lives. They are inexperienced. They are, um, so they're, first of all, easy prey. So a lot of predators know to look out for newly um, unchaperoned young mm-hmm. who, um, are big enough to be on their own, but they're they're just they're big and dumb basically, and okay. so they are they're easy prey. So that's one um, piece. So they so young and animal adolescents have high um, high rates of death in those early phases. And by the way, if you look at the early days of driving, when kids start to drive, those first that first year is the riskiest, right? And it's and the more experience someone has behind the wheel, the safer they become. So mm-hmm. every so there's some sort of parallel between like adolescent non-human animals kind of going out and learning to deal with predators and be safe and then adolescent humans who are learning to drive and keep themselves yeah. safe from uh, other cars that could Yeah, hit exactly. Them. It's it's yeah, a, yeah it's, it's kind of it's a it's an imperfect parallel but it's there. Yeah. But anyway, so in terms of um, why one of the, so if you were to just look at animal adolescence and the things that they do that put them in danger, you might say, oh, well, and all you knew was neurobiology and psychology. If you didn't know about ecology, you might say, oh, well, maybe they have like underdeveloped prefrontal cortex. But then you're like, well, wait a minute, do they have a human prefrontal cortex? Right? So then yeah. it's confusing. Okay. So how to explain it? So this is where you put on your ecologist hat. Yeah. And you start, or your animal behaviorist hat, and you start saying, hmm. Mm-hmm. So why are what are they actually doing yeah. and there are two really amazing i found really for me um again transformational insights the first is that um 
some of what adolescent animals are doing is just trying to stay alive. It looks like risk-taking, but actually it's not. So um, if you look at a group of birds, and there have been a lot of experiments that have looked at their dominance and their subordinates. Right. And um, it turns out when you are a young member of a flock, you age is really an important rank criteria. So the older you are, you typically become more dominant. So adolescents are typically subordinates. Right. So the bird biologists look at these groups of dominant and mm -hmm. subordinate birds, right? And they do this thing where they the birds are all feeding in a little field, and then they bring in this predator, this you mm -hmm. know, pseudo predator. And what do the birds do? They all, of course, go into the bushes to hide. Yeah. And that's when the experiment begins. Okay. They then start to watch which of the birds will come out to start feeding first. So if you did this like in a crowd of high schoolers, you'd like bring the zombie out and you're like, oh, and everybody would go hide, yeah. right? And then who would come out first? Right. It, would be, yeah. it wouldn't be the teachers. It would be the... The, the adolescence. Yes, and I'm I'm gonna make, I'm gonna I love where you're going with it. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make the metaphor work a little bit better. Okay, the okay. zombie has a a big um, is it Halloween zombie it has a lot of candy. Oh, okay. There's it's like food. a pinata zombie. It's a pinata of. zombie. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. So so they watch for it to see, and uh -huh. and of course none of the birds knows whether the predator's gone or not. It's an unknown, and what turns out is that the subordinates come out first, and mm. the subordinates and there are theories about it, but. One of the primary theories is that um, subordinates are, you know, dominant birds eat sometimes the food when there's food and often restrict access to subordinates. So subordinates are like hungrier and the bird, they, so these younger birds presumably have to come out and start eating because they don't want to starve. So in other words, need is driving them to do it looks like risk taking and if you don't know mm -hmm. what's happening, you might think, well, maybe it's just neurobiology. And actually, it's amazing because what that means is that being a subordinate um, forces you, not having as many resources, forces you to do things which put yourself in jeopardy that can mm. be misinterpreted as just mm. risk-taking. Okay. The Urban Institute, which is this you know yeah. think tank that LBJ founded in the uh -huh. 60s for the war on poverty, they published a study in 2016. And they looked at food insecurity among teenagers in America. And between there are, in 2016, there were almost 7 million 10 to 17-year-olds in the U.S. who have regular food insecurity. And many of them um, steal, sell drugs, and even engage in sexual transactions to eat. Wow. To eat. And so, again, if, you, if you're not thinking like an ecologist and you don't really see this pattern... Right. You can misunderstand the motivation. Right. And you can miss that the situation that they're in is really the problem. It's not that there's something wrong with their brains. Correct. It's the ecology. Yeah. Which then gives us this amazing opportunity if we as a society want to take that opportunity right. to actually address that yeah. by changing, to, to, you know, yeah. changing resources. And, right. Right. Um, but so, that's one. Yeah. One so reason. One, yeah. one potential reason why you might approach of a situation where there's a predator is because there's some potential benefit to be gotten. And if you're subordinate, you might actually need to get that more, right? Than if yeah. you're more the dominant, dominant. The dominant's been fed. Their risk mm -hmm. of starvation is is okay. not as not as near. And okay. actually it also works for the dominants to keep the subordinates hungry. This is a little political, but it's true because mm. if the subordinate goes out and there is a predator there, then a, they now know that. They're watching from the bushes. And B, now the predator has eaten. That's so dark. It's dark. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's about exploitation. Not about, it's about exploitative zombies. Um, but well, it's like they're making those subordinate zombies, if they are keeping them hu- more hungry than they would otherwise right. be, right? Yes, so. that's actually true. And you know, as I think about it, everything is zombie because when there is suppression and re- hunger leads people to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. Yeah. Hunger zombifies people. Yeah. Need. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. But, to, but the other behavior that you see adolescent animals engaging in, which can illuminate risk-taking in human adolescence or the high accident mm-hmm. risk, is something that's really, really interesting um, and uh, it kind of remarkable. So um, if you watch a group of young gazelle, Thompson gazelle, right, um, in Africa, you may see a behavior that surprises you. Um, you may see, like, if a cheetah comes, approaches, the expected response and usual response is that the gazelle take flight. But sometimes you can see, you can watch it on video, on YouTube rather, you see a group of gazelle see uh, see cheetah and you see them actually not only not fleeing, they're they're standing there looking at them Mm. and the cheetahs are looking at them. There's no question that, and they actually don't go away from them. They start to approach the cheetahs. Wow. And this behavior is also been seen in um, minnows and fish. It's seen in um, uh, in bird, some bird species. It's seen in meerkats, uh, and it's called predator inspection. And predator inspection is believed to um, it, it's, it's it's defined essentially as individuals approaching their mortal enemy. Mm-hmm. And displaying what is essentially morbid curiosity. Right. Now the question is, why the hell are they doing that? Yeah. It seems like a real. Are they just really dumb? <laughs> are they? Do they have a death wish? Um, are they showing off for their friends? <laughs> are they on the pathway to becoming a physician? Are they? <laughs> I mean, it's it is kind of um, incredibly sort of. On the one hand, it seems to be counterintuitive. Yeah. But. Um, and by the way, when predator inspection happens, they often do it in groups, like they, it's part of sort of a mobbing behavior, so they come together. But nevertheless, so, so it, you shouldn't go to a zombie movie by yourself, is what you're saying. Go with it's your friends. Best, yes, go with your friends. <laughs> go, if you want, yeah, and, and you know, there's safety in numbers. <laughs> and which is actually, you know, typically in those zombie movies, it seems to me that when when the group is separated, yeah. it's bad news. Right. Never never go Don't, and break up. Just yeah, always stay, stay together. together. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do your predator inspection as a team. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. But these um, amazing, um, these amazing, you know, investigations that look at predator inspection show that, um, yeah, it's true that sometimes predator inspection can cost you your life. But in the long run, it actually uh, keeps you safer. Hmm. So... It's a kind of... Um, how is it keeping you safer? So um, the proximate mechanism. Yeah. So how it's believed to work is that having more information about the thing that's most dangerous to you um, allows you to um, navigate risk and sort of make better decisions mm-hmm. in your future, your near future. So if I'm a gazelle and I know just how fast... 
the fastest cheetah can run, then I know how long I can keep eating this until I run away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, but there's lots of things. I mean, it's not just like, oh, cheetah, dangerous, I should avoid. It turns out that cheetahs are dangerous when they're hunting and when they're, they're, when they're hungry. Mm. But a, a carnivore, whether it's a lion, that, who's been fed isn't dangerous at all. And you can see video of prey species walking right past their mortal enemy no when they're when they're sated so just you <gasps> knowing your predator is wow. keeps you safe because it also you're then not deprived of certain feeding opportunities because you're not overreacting unnecessarily so the more knowledge you have about your predator and how how it how it relates the other interesting know your predator i mean this totally relates to the zombie issue right because zombies they're just always hungry, and they're always trying to eat you. They're never satisfied? That's the idea. They're oh, just... That's, they never get full. So they're like a... Like a teenager. They're like a... <laughs> <laughs> you ever had a teenage son? <laughs> try, try keeping the refrigerator full. I didn't know that. So, they, yeah, so yeah. they're like a predator that no matter how much you inspect them, you can't know when they're full or Okay, not. so that is so... So it... So then what if you, so that's a really good point. So if you're not going to get information about when a predator, like about, because if satiety isn't, if, if variation in satiety doesn't correlate with the danger, yeah, then there's other information. So some of the other information you could get would be what they smell like. Right to get zombies smell really bad apparently. Okay, so there you go. So now, so now you know what they smell like. You um, know a little bit what they um, maybe what they sound like. You also are looking potentially at the relationship between the different the age of mm -hmm. the predator who's there. Um, you're just picking up. You're you're doing like risk assessment. Right. And what's really interesting is that um, in studies that look at predator like fish young fish yeah. who predator inspect. Um, and they often do it together, but even sometimes by themselves. When they come back, and the the group that they come back to, even if they haven't themselves predator inspected, that whole group becomes safer because there's social transmission of that knowledge that came from predator inspection. And yeah. that young, and this is not just in fish, but that being deprived of that sort of peer influence, that peer yeah. knowledge, is actually a, is 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 risky. You're having social social information about danger is very advantageous, which is sort of interesting because as a parent, like my kids are um, nearing the end of adolescence, depending mm -hmm. on who's defining it, yeah. right? That um, I would have thought, well, I want my kids to be friends with like the nerdiest, most unworldly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the, <laughs> but it may be that when it comes to being safe, there's a lot of information that peers who've had some experience yeah. can offer. Right, right. So I know we just have a few minutes left. I definitely want to get to the question about what is your version of the morbid curiosity zombie apocalypse? Like if everyone morbid curiosity just kick it up a few notches oh what does the world look like so if everyone is let's just say that predator inspection is is moving toward the thing that could kill you yeah. the most right so yeah. so it's it's you're like driven to like 
get information about these things that are really yeah. dangerous, but to a point where you're taking way more risk maybe than is would be wise. So, I mean, oh, I love that question. Um, so I would say two things come to mind. One would be that... Um, one would be that if, if you have a big group um, with a common enemy mm-hmm. and the group comes together to approach the enemy, that's called mobbing. Yeah. And that is a well-known behavior in lots of animals from mammals to birds to mm-hmm. fish. And that is, w- that is one of the ways that you can um, overcome real danger. You can actually literally take the thing which can completely smite you because it's a zombie and you're just a little nothing. But you bring, if everybody is coming up to the zombie, then it changes. Mm. It's like the French Revolution. Interesting. Right. So that's maybe the way that you ultimately defeat the zombie is by coming together. And what's really interesting is that sometimes birds come together who are not from the same species it's called a mixed flock a mixed flock um, a mixed species flock but they have a shared enemy and they mob that shared predator together wow isn't that interesting so do you think we could get like all of the species of the world to work together in the zombie apocalypse to mob all the zombies I think it's possible, but I definitely, I definitely, I think that's the best, the ultimate goal to get all the species. But even if we could get like our species together, that would be, yeah. that would be the taller order, actually. Yeah. But um, yeah, the idea that um, there's safety in numbers, and that in fact the best way to inspect, uh, to prepare yeah. inspect, is in with a, a team. And if you're in a team, then maybe is it actually okay to be more willing to inspect so you can like actually have your morbid curiosity enhance when you're with yeah. the group. Yeah, which takes me to the second one. I love mm-hmm. this question so much because um, one of the things that's really interesting and unexpected about, um, it's not just adolescent animals, but let's just focus on adolescent uh, fish, for example, um, that, you know, the expression, you know, was FDR said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, right? right? So it turns out... Um, that certain fish, I believe it's sticklebacks, that if they're, and sticklebacks are part of, most fish species don't get, most fish don't get parental care, right? It's like lay them and leave them, lay the eggs and they're gone. (laughs) But 20% of species, there actually is parental care. And very often it's paternal, the the dads, the fathers are taking care of the the eggs and then the little fry and, and whatnot. And um, what's really interesting is um, there's a lot of interest in, well, how does a parent's behavior, a father's behavior, change the behavior of its offspring? And it turns out that um, anxious fathers, anxious stickleback fathers who've had like lots of really scary experience Mm -hmm. with predators actually have offspring in some of the experiments who have more, they call it anxiety, Mm -hmm. their word. And you'd think, well, that's a good thing because then they... They're more cautious. And sometimes it's a good thing. But it turns out fish anxiety, actually, um, the anxious behavior causes, um, increases the chance of a fish being eaten by a predator. I mean, there's really that the anxiety causes um, a certain jerking movement, which it's like instead of immediately getting away, there's this delay. So the anxiety itself is fitness reducing. I mean, not always, but in, in this the study that I'm specifically referring to. Wow. So, and it's interesting because it's also, 
if you're raised by a, a parent, a father, a stickleback, who was raised in a really dangerous environment where there are predators all the time, and now you're in an environment where like all the predators are gone. Like, it's also you don't need to be so scared. Maybe you're you're not mm-hmm. getting opportunities, so that's a negative too. Mm-hmm. So the idea that don't that anxiety and fear has a cost. I mean, sometimes it's the best thing in the world, but sometimes yeah. it's not. So one of the things I, in terms of the zombie apocalypse yeah. and morbid curiosity, is that if you have these groups of let's say adolescents who are coming to inspect. Yeah. And they're everyone's so scared because it's a zombie. It's a zombie. <laughs> and it's a zombie apocalypse. And now it's like, oh my God. Look at that. It says the teeth are oh, you know, like sort of like it's not so scary uh-huh. after all. I mean, there's uh-huh. some danger, but yeah. Yeah, I see what we have to do. They're really not very fast. And, <laughs> they're and just hungry. They're hungry and they don't look very steady on their feet. It's like you start to sort of like, yeah, there's some risk here, but I'm not that scared. I There's a strategy. So so maybe um, morbid curiosity and kind of collectively coming toward the thing that scares us the most can um, not only bring us together, but also help us put some of the things that we um, think are so scary into perspective, mm. which will ultimately keep us safer. I love that, Barb. Thank you so much for sharing your brains with us this episode. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, you to the Department of Psychology and ASU in general for supporting Zombified, especially the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Also, thank you to my lab, the Actipus Lab, otherwise known as the Cooperation and Conflict Lab. Thank you to the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And if you are looking for us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, we are Zombified Pod. On Patreon, we're Zombified, and our website is zombified.org. Please consider supporting us. We're an educational podcast. We have no ads. Um, Just $1 a month will make a difference in terms of helping us to um, make this podcast happen. Thank you also to all of the brains that help to make this podcast the extremely talented Tal Ram, who does our sound, 
to Neil Smith, who does all of our illustrations, to Lemmy, the awesome artist behind the song, Psychological, uh, to everyone in my lab who helps out with so many different aspects of this podcast, and actually to everyone who has ever shared their brains with me. You are a part of this podcast somehow. Uh, Speaking of brain sharing, at the end of each episode, I share some of my brain. I offer a story or some sort of connection to my work or just uh, a wild speculation about something. And so for this episode, I wanted to talk about how excited I am about this idea of morbid curiosity and what it can do for us. So one of the things that I really loved is how, in a way, Barb kind of embodies morbid curiosity. You know, she's curious about all of these things that are threats to human health. And she is looking at that across organisms and looking across organisms at why Organisms are fascinated by things that are threatening, too. And so when she talked at the end about how morbid curiosity can be this force to bring us together, I found that really inspiring. So this idea that if we are able to approach the things that scare us together, then that can put things into perspective and ultimately keep us safer. Because if we're doing that together, then we're gathering information together. And in that process of gathering information, we are actually safer because we're doing it together. And this is kind of the whole point of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Meeting to kind of leverage our collective morbid curiosity so that we can better understand the threats that we're facing, whether those are you know, infectious diseases or uh, getting hijacked neurally by social media or how to actually deal with disasters when they happen. So all those things, I think they're less scary when we approach them and we examine them together. And it's more fun with morbid curiosity. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.